This is Ron Stockton. I've been talking about specific cases which illustrate how people became radicalized or how situations uh, became radicalized. And uh, I just want to talk about two more cases. One is the Chiapas uprising, which happened about 20 years ago in um, in southern Mexico. Uh, it was an uprising of indigenous peoples against uh, the government and uh, do you remember I, one of my students told me that uh, it was an example of a genocide? There were people being, uh, uh, she was from that area, so uh, uh, Puebla. So uh, she was uh, maybe had a perspective on that. But <clears throat> that was uh, led by a man named Subcomandante Marcos or subcomandante zero he was he had different different names that he used and uh he was always shown with a face mask so you could never see who he was but he was interviewed by western journalists and spoke very good english so um she was talking about uh about this uprising and i and and she made some reference to him and i said you know he speaks very good english because um, I'd heard him, and I said, "Do you know? Do you have any idea where, how he learned English?" And she said, "Oh, he learned it in uh, Los Angeles. He lived in the United States for a while." And I said, "Oh my gosh! It seems like the New York Times isn't aware of this. They 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 always talk about the mysterious subcomandante Marcos, and they never seem to know anything about him." And uh, she said, "Yeah, he lived in Los Angeles." And I said, "How how do you know this?" And she said, oh, he was my professor. And I said, what, he was your professor? And uh, she said, yeah, at the, uh, there's a Catholic uh, college in Puebla. And she said, I went to that college, and he was a professor there. He taught, he taught liberation theology. And I said, oh, my goodness, he taught liberation theology? She said, yes. And I said, uh, I said well, t- tell us and tell me and tell the class, uh, how, how is her... What does he emphasize that I haven't emphasized? Or what does he say that's similar or different? And she said, oh, his lectures were exactly like yours. They dealt with all the same topics. And I thought, well, this is good. You know, I'm got the same, uh, I got the same pedagogical approach as, uh, as a great revolutionary. And uh, I think in the end, they worked out some kind of a, a truce. Um, he was a very practical person, and uh, he worked out some kind of a, some kind of a truce. Uh, uh, with uh, the government and the and the indigenous people, that they that they would have their rights. So uh, that's a very interesting story. I think again, it's bottom up. It's not some. He didn't learn his theology from reading books. He learned his theology from dealing with people, engaging real people, of which he was one. Uh, the last story has to do with uh, Archbishop Romero of El Salvador, um, Oscar Romero. He was assassinated in the middle of uh, a mass. I think it was Easter Day or Good Friday, maybe. I can't remember now. It happened in 1980. I remember it very well. I remember listening in the radio that he had been uh, assassinated. And since I taught about him and had and had uh, students read some of his uh, writings, um, 
I was familiar with him. Uh, I was in uh, London at Westminster Abbey a few years ago, and they have a new arch of 20th century martyrs. And he is listed there on that extremely Protestant uh, cathedral. Uh, this uh, famous Catholic uh, bishop is listed, archbishop is listed as a, uh, as a, uh, um, a martyr for his faith, which he is. Um, Archbishop Romero was a very conservative person. It's interesting to think about him. He was a very conservative person, and uh, uh, he uh, and the uh, bishop died. Bishop would become the archbishop in time, and so the bishop died, and uh, uh, they needed a new bishop, and the. Um, uh, needed a new um, archbishop. So the uh, um, the bishops in El Salvador were pretty conservative. And uh, so they looked around for someone who wasn't going to be advocating all these radical ideas. And so they chose him. Romero was famous for his, um, for his uh, liturgies. And... Uh, he was a, um, he could write beautiful liturgies. The liturgy is like a special service or prayer for a special occasion. And uh, so they thought, okay, this guy is not going to be too radical. So he became uh, the archbishop. And uh, he was sitting in his office one day. Now, you know, I heard this story from... Some of this, some of what I'm going to tell you is is known, and some of it is not known. But I heard this story from a young American guy who was uh, like he he was he was the maintenance person at the cathedral. He it was like his job to make sure everything was in order. I mean, he didn't sweep the floors, but it was his job to make sure everything was in order. And so he told me. And he was there when the archbishop was assassinated, and he told me about what happened. So here's what happened. And there's a movie, by the way, called Romero. That's one of the options for extra credit. And uh, so um, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good uh, movie, actually. A little bit like a, a, pa- a, bit, a little bit like a, a pageant, you know, in which everything happens exactly the way you know it's going to happen. And but anyway, it's it's pretty good. Um, he was sitting in his office one day, and in a someone came into his office and said, uh, uh, "Bishop, uh, there's someone has been killed. One of the priests has been killed." And he said, "Why was he killed? Was he involved in some politics or something?" And he said, "No, he was just organizing the peasants. They were organizing a food cooperative, and he was assassinated." Who assassinated him? Well, some death squads, nobody knows who these people are. They just assassinate people. Well, come on, they're branches of the military. And so he was very upset. He knew this priest and, uh, and knew the family and so uh, his, his relatives. So, uh, so that was a shock to him. And, uh, but <clears throat> then a second priest was assassinated and same story. And at this point, he's really upset. So he contacted the Pope, the new Pope, I might say, relatively new, John Paul II, 
And he said, Holy Father, I need to talk to you. Okay. So he got on a plane and he went to Rome. And he said, my priests are being assassinated. What am I supposed to do? Now, remember, John Paul was the guy who said that if you invade Poland, I will leave Rome and I will go organize the resistance. This is a guy who's not afraid of anything, and he has a sense of what you're supposed to do. Having a position is not, uh, having a position of privilege is, is a duty, not, a, not just uh, something you can uh, bask in the glory of that. And so the new pope said to him, you back up your priest. That's what you do. Why are you standing here talking to me? And so he went back and uh, began to institute changes. And uh, one thing he did was insist on having common baptism. Uh, in the past, the oligarchs, those very privileged people, could have a private baptism. The, uh, the typical pattern is that the first Sunday of every month, you have a baptism. And uh, anybody who wants to have their child baptized can come forward, including these uh, dirty, smelly peasants. And the rich oligarchs did not want to be standing next to dirty, smelly peasants who may well be somebody that works on their farm, on their estate. And so he began having common baptisms for everybody. And the oligarchs got really upset. They said, why are you doing this? You're humiliating us. He says, no, I'm not. All, uh, all Christians are equal to each other. We're going to be doing this. Well, they didn't like that at all. And, uh, and then he began to uh, preach radical sermons. He sent a letter to President Carter saying, you're backing this regime. Your country is backing this regime and people are getting killed and you should stop that. Well, this was, and he published this letter. He didn't, it was a public letter. And then he delivered a sermon in which he said to you, because most of the soldiers, come on, they're just young guys who got grabbed and stuck in a uniform and told you're now a soldier. And so uh, he preached a sermon which went out on the radio to the whole country. And he said, for those of you in uniform, if you are told to kill someone who is protesting government policies, that is an illegal order and it is not a Christian order and you are not supposed to obey those orders. Well, at that point, he's inciting rebellion against the oligarchs. So the oligarchs control the land, they control the church, they control the military, they control just about they control the economy, they control just about everything. And he's inciting rebellion. So he was standing in his cathedral uh, in the middle of the mass, and someone came in and shot him to death right there in front of a crowded uh, cathedral. It was kind of a dramatic moment. And of course, they never found out who did it. But he became a uh, he became an iconic hero uh, to uh, to people. Um, one last concept. There's a uh, there's a shortage of priests, a serious shortage of priests. So religious people out in the villages will organize their own little church. And uh, these are called base Christian communities. So a group of people will meet on Sunday, and they'll designate uh, whoever in the congregation, in the group, 
is the most literate and thoughtful person, and that person will read a biblical passage and then deliver some reflections on it, and that's the sermon. And uh, these sermons were sometimes very pointed. These uh, base, they're called base Christian communities. That's what they're called. And uh, that's a direct translation from Spanish. Base Christian communities. Now, there are two ways to look at this. One way to look at this is, this is really good because there are not enough priests to go around and these people are, uh, are trying to maintain religion within their lives just by doing the best that they can. The second way of looking at it is, these are really revolutionary cells. They're kind of scary. The third way of looking at it is, wait a minute, individuals, reading the Bible, delivering sermons based on that, no priests in the room. This sounds to me like Protestantism. We've been fighting this for 400 years. So the church was, as we might say, conflicted on this. At one point, in one of their major, uh, in one of their major uh, conferences of the Latin American bishops, they actually praised base Christian communities and said, uh, these are good, we should encourage them. In another conference, they said, uh, we've got to bring these under control. We have to establish uh, standards, and we've got to make sure who's, we've got to vet who's, who these leaders are, and we've got to make sure that they're not uh, becoming uh, Protestant uh, churches or, uh, or uh, radicalized uh, centers of resistance to the regime. It's very interesting that in these, uh, these very Catholic uh, countries, there's a large number of people, by large, I mean sometimes 20 or so percent, who actually have become Protestants. Usually by some Pentecostal church, the Assembly of God maybe is very uh, active, uh, apostolic church. These are, these are um, Pentecostal, and uh, they often have... Uh, uh, forceful personalities they broadcast over TV and radio, and so a large number of people are becoming uh, Pentecostal Protestants. Um, in the United States, it's interesting that uh, Catholics tend to vote for the Democratic Party, but among Hispanics, but among those Hispanics who are Protestants, many of them are Republicans. So I think these things are sort of converging. Uh, this, is a, this is a kind of a, a complex uh, uh, lecture, a series of anecdotes and stories, but I hope it's been helpful to you in, in getting some idea of the dynamic of what's happening within the church uh, 